right. Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And preschoolers, we will see you later. Have a good class. All right, well, back when I was working in the hospital, uh, working in the emergency department, uh, there was a physician, a certain specialist that I got to know uh, because he would often be down in the ER uh, either admitting patients, getting people ready to go to uh, surgery, and therefore we'd run into uh, one another a decent amount of times. We would strike up some conversations, got to know one another a little bit. And on one particular occasion, uh, it came up, he had brought up that his wife uh, worked as well. And uh, I knew them, you know, I, I knew him to be, you know, fairly financially well off. I knew that she probably wasn't working to make ends meet or anything like that. And so I just kind of probed with some questions like, oh, is she, is she a physician as well? Does she have something she's passionate about, something she's called to, something she's really uh, excited about? And he said, no, not really. Um, but that they needed her to work uh, to get where they needed to be financially. And just, just to clarify for a second, okay, I, I do not believe there's anything wrong with women working outside of the home or anything like that. That's not the point of me bringing this up. My, the point of me bringing this up is that, was that in that moment when he said those words, that she actually hated her job, but they needed her to work to get where they needed to be financially, Something in my brain clicked. Something all of a sudden kind of made sense. Because, you see, at that time, I was, uh, uh, I was a younger man. I had just started working, just started making uh, good money, had a good job, and started to feel that temptation to, to, to love money, to want to get to the next financial uh, tax bracket, to get to that next level financially. And I could start to even see it and taste it and where we could be at in five years and 10 years and 20 years. However, when I heard that surgical specialist who I knew made big money, money you know, beyond what even I could comprehend making, when I heard him say that he needed just a little bit more to get to where he needed to go, what hit me in that moment was that it would never be enough. It will never be enough. And that was a word, it was not for him so much, I didn't say it out loud, all right? I think that was a word for me in that moment, that it would never be enough, that even if I reached that financial level he was at, it would still not be enough if I was looking to money to provide me satisfaction and contentment. And you see, church, this morning we have arrived at these verses in Hebrews, and these verses in Hebrews uh, are going to bring up certain topics, They're going to bring up first the topics of marriage and sexuality, as well as the topic of money. And I realize we have uh, different ages in here. I realize we have young kids in here. Um, I will try to be as as delicate and discerning as I can be uh, to give an appropriate message for all the ages in here. There are going to be times I will be a bit vague and just hope you can kind of follow with me in the vagueness. And then uh, please also, though, be gracious with me. There might be things I say that just that just come out that maybe you're going to need to clarify on the car ride home. Uh, I think in general, those will be good things that you can um, um, uh, converse with your kids at at an age-appropriate level as to what's going on here in these passages. Uh, But it's it's no coincidence, it's no coincidence that God puts these topics together in these verses. 
You see, there is something in the heart of every human being that is prone to be discontent with what they have and just want a little more. There's something in us that is prone to be discontent, to be disappointed where we're at and want just a little more or what, want what we don't have. And ha- haven't we all seen this in, in our lives? Kids, all the kids in here. Kids, haven't you seen this in your life? Like where you've uh, maybe gone out with your parents, you've done something fun, and yet at the very end of it, don't you just wish it would have lasted just a little bit longer? That you could have rode just one more ride or had one more treat or that it could just be a little bit better, a little bit greater. We all have those times where we want just a little bit more. And kids, you're not alone in this. The adults in the room, we experience this as well, right? I mean, every Sunday night, instead of thanking the Lord for a a, a weekend and thanking the Lord for a day to worship Him and be with His people, instead, what do we hope, what do we think about Sunday night? We wish the weekend was just one more day. Just give me one more day and then I would be good. God, just a little bit more money and I'd be happy. If my husband was just a little bit more romantic, then this would be good. If my wife was just a little bit more available, then I would be happy. And I'm telling you, church, if you are looking to created things like physical intimacy and money and any other created thing, if you are looking to the created thing for lasting satisfaction and contentment, in the end, it will never be enough. It will never be enough. And this can be absolutely devastating in someone's life when the attitude of discontentment and wanting more plays itself out in the areas of marriage and sexuality and money. And so this morning, we must come to God's word and see that the problem is not primarily with our circumstances. The problem is not primarily with money. The problem is not primarily with marriage. No, the problem is within our hearts. And we need Christ to come work on our hearts this morning and bring the lasting satisfaction and contentment that only he can bring. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask for his help as we look at his word. Father God, we do come before you today thankful, Lord, that because of Jesus, we can come before you, that we can call you Father, that we can know you, be known by you, that we can uh, come into this fellowship of believers and experience a unity and a bond in our common love for you. But Father, we confess that in these areas, of marriage and money and sexuality, Lord, we have fallen short time and time again of what you've called us to. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and paying the price for our sins, freeing us from the power of our sins. And we ask, Lord, in this time that your word would be clear, that your truth would go forth. Lord, I do ask for your help. I ask I ask that you would help me speak clearly in a way that is edifying to the body. Uh, Lord, help my, help my immaturity or even nervous energy not get in the way 
of what you're trying to teach us in your word. So we ask for your help. Help this be glorifying and honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Here we go. God's word says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God's word starts out by saying, let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, to be held in honor, this is what that means. That means that marriage should be seen as being something very precious to us. We should see it as having great value. We must cherish it. We must treasure it to a certain degree, seeing that it is valuable. And this, this applies to all of us, all right? It's saying, let marriage be held amongst all. Okay? Uh, uh, single people, married people, men, women, children, all of us, we must honor marriage and we must cherish it. Now, that doesn't mean that we all must pursue it. God might call some of us uh, uh, to singleness, either for a season or for a lifetime. And that's, that's great. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But everyone, even though we might not all pursue it, everyone must cherish it and honor it. Why? Why must we all do it? Well, because God's word says, but, but, There's probably a lot of reasons why, but probably the only really reason that matters and that carries weight is because God created it. That is why we must cherish it. God created it. Paul, when writing to Timothy, and he was instructing him against some false teachers who were teaching that you should forbid marriage, you should abstain from certain foods and drinks and all this stuff, and he writes in 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, he says, For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Church, everything created by God is good. And when God created marriage, when he took one man and one woman and said in the covenant of marriage that the two should come together and become one flesh, that is a good thing. God created it. That was not the enemy's idea. That was not the culture, you know, coming up with that. That was God's idea. And it was a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. God created it. We must cherish it. We must see it as having value, being a valuable thing. The marriage bed as well, in Hebrews 13, verse 4, the marriage bed as well, which, which, uh, The adults in the room, are you tracking with me when we talk about the marriage bed? Are you guys, we've got some confused. Okay, that's all right, all right. The marriage bed, all right, speaking of this physical intimacy between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage, okay? Um, And he's saying that the the marriage bed as well has been created by God, and it is good. It's not some uh, dirty, scandalous thing. It's a good thing. God created it. But here's where we get off track. And I realize these conversations can get off track very quickly, even in the church, okay? Here's where we get off track. We get off track when we forget that everything that was, everything created, everything was created by him and for him, as it says in Colossians. Everything was created by him and for him, including marriage and including the marriage bed. Meaning your marriage is not ultimately about you. And your marriage bed is ultimately not about you either. And so we live in a culture, though, that has chosen to worship created things over our creator God. 
And therefore, we've sought to worship ourselves through our sexuality, through making physical intimacy all about us. We've gone about defining marriage in a way that suits our desires, going to the marriage bed with whomever and however will most please us. The marriage bed is a worshipful place, but we've, started, we've worshipped ourselves in our sin. And so things like Pride Week and Pride Month and Pride Parades, they are accurately and sadly, ironically, describing what we've done. We've taken something that was not ultimately created by us or for us, and we've made it all about us in our pride. Instead of receiving it with thanksgiving, instead of worshiping God through it by obeying his guidelines for it, we've rewritten the rules of the marriage bed in order to please and worship ourselves. And God warns us, he warns us in this verse, that he will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, sexual immorality, I'm not going to go through all the list of things that, that, that could be included in this. It's essentially a term that refers to any sexual behavior that is outside the God-given purpose of physical intimacy, which is to be between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Adultery. The other term that's used here, I think most of you know what this is referring to. It's referring to anyone who has broken the covenant of marriage and gone outside of it, and by doing so, has defiled the marriage bed. We then know that Jesus even extended this sin of adultery uh, to saying that if anyone even looks lustfully at a woman, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. And we see here that God will judge the sexually immoral, and the adulterous, whether it's been committed with our hands or our hearts. But let's acknowledge here, let's acknowledge here that Christians, we are quick to see the sexual sins of our culture, but pretty slow to confess and acknowledge the sexual sins of our own churches and our own selves. And so this morning, I'm not concerned with addressing all the sexual sin that's going on in our culture. I'm most concerned about the sexual sins of our church. Because we must confess that to some degree or another, sin has caused us to be sexually broken and to be sexually distorted in our view of it and to, to, to have this desire to want to please and worship and serve ourselves above everything else. Pride has caused us to think that our sexuality is ultimately about us. And it's not. It's not. Listen, if you're single, your singleness and that calling to singleness, whether it's for a season or for a lifetime, it is ultimately not about you. If you are married, your marriage is not ultimately about you. Your marriage bed is not ultimately about you. Your body is not your own. Paul, when writing to the Corinthians, he's trying to help them see this, this as well. He's trying to help them see the seriousness of sexual immorality when he writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, which we'll have up on the screen. He says, flee sexual immorality. 
meaning like run. Sometimes you've got to run. Sometimes it's mentally you've got to just run another direction. Sometimes physically you actually, like Joseph, have to run. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, sexual sin is is so much more serious than any other sin because not only is it a sin that is we are committing against our own body, which is true. I mean, you think about the, the, the temporary and the lifelong diseases, infections, the things that come against our body, uh, the, the, the energy, the motivation, the times that are stolen away from us, stolen away from people who should be discipling the nations. You think about how this disqualifies people that have been called to ministry and things like this, right? But not only is this a sin against our own body? He talks about earlier in 1 Corinthians 6 about how in sexual sin, since we are united to Christ, we are essentially uniting Christ with a prostitute when we sin in this way. And I mean, how dishonoring, how offensive to God, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and us still then engaging in sexual sin. But then in verse 19, in 1 Corinthians 6, in verse 19, it has an earth-shattering truth that should absolutely change your life. At the end of the verse 19, it says, you are not your own. You are not your own. Your body is not your own. Your sexuality is not your own. Your body and your sexuality were not meant to glorify and worship yourself. They were meant to glorify God. And so the marriage bed is supposed to be a place of worship, but it's supposed to be a place where we worship and honor God through our obedience to his proper design and receive it with thanksgiving, but we wrongly use it to worship ourselves. And so if you are married, and if you are not worshiping and honoring God in the marriage bed, you are doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And so maybe, maybe, you're not, maybe you're not obviously doing this wrong, like looking at pornography or committing adultery or some things like that. And we're going to address some of those things later. Obviously, if you're doing those things, you need to confess, you need to repent. We need to, we need to move past this together, okay? Those are the obvious ways that we defile the marriage bed. But there's something even more subtle that creeps into our marriage beds and defile it and dishonor God. And that is when even us as Christians, we enter in and we start to make the marriage bed all about us. And we start to view it as a way to serve us and to take things for us. You see, all of life is to be offered up to God as worship. And the marriage bed is not an exception to that. It's not like that all your life over here, you know, is supposed to be worship, you're serving God and all this, but, but the marriage bed, no, that's, that's just for you. You, you kind of view that self- selfishly. All of life is supposed to be offered up to God as worship, and the marriage bed is not an exception to this. We should still live as Christians with our spouses on the marriage bed. We are still Christians. 
meaning we are still to obey the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave us, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And who is our neighbor in the marriage bed? It is our spouse. It is our spouse. And therefore, the marriage bed works best and is undefiled when a man and a woman come together in marriage and seek to honor God by loving and serving the other person. Men, marriage is not an excuse for you to stop living like a Christian and just take what you think is yours. That is abuse. That's defiling the marriage bed. That's not honoring to God to go into it with selfish intentions. Women, the marriage bed is not for you to to hold out on your husband in order to manipulate or control him in any way. That is defiling the marriage bed. That is not honoring to God. No, the marriage bed is ultimately supposed to be a place where two people who are experiencing relational and emotional intimacy get to enjoy and experience physical intimacy as well, where they worship God through loving and trying to outserve one another. Aren't you guys glad you came to church this morning? All right. Church, our marriages, look, at the end of the day, our marriages are ultimately supposed to be a picture to the world of Christ's love for his bride, the church. It's not ultimately about you and your body. It's supposed to be about showing the world how great a sacrificial love that Christ has for his church. But listen, we do have an enemy, and we know his schemes, and he would love for the world to not have a picture of Christ's love for the church. And therefore, our marriages and our marriage beds and our sexuality are under attack. I mean, if you haven't realized this, wake up. They are under attack. This is not peacetime. This is wartime. And we have an enemy who will do whatever he can to encourage physical intimacy outside the marriage bed and discourage physical intimacy inside the marriage bed. This is the desire. He does not want the world to get this picture of Christ and his love for the church. So don't be naive to his schemes. But instead, pray for your marriage. Be on guard in your marriage. Pray for other marriages in this church and with friends and family. Pray for one another as we seek to honor God, realizing that our bodies are not our own. But in order for us to really understand this and to really get this this passage and, and where the writer of Hebrews is going, we need to understand our own hearts and we need to understand our own motivations for sin a little bit more. Because you see, for men and women, one of the underlying sins that starts destroying the marriage bed and marriage and the family and the church is the sin of coveting. Of coveting. God knew what sin had caused in the hearts of humans, and so this made his top ten list of commands in Exodus chapter 20. This is number ten. Which, by the way, God's commands are always a blessing. He who created the world and he who created us know how, knows how life works best. And so these are blessings for us to follow them because th- God knows how, how we are created to operate and how life will work best. And so he says in Exodus 20, verse 17, he says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant 
or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, to covet, let's understand to covet. To covet is to be discontent with your current lot or portion in life and to lust after what God has not given you. Right? To covet is to be content, uh, excuse me, to be discontent with your current lot or portion in life and to lust after what God has not given you. And my question for you this morning is that is your life and your sexuality and your singleness or your marriage, is it marked more by cherishing the portion God has given you or coveting and lusting over what he has withheld? That's the question to consider. Is your life marked more by cherishing the portion that God has given you or coveting over what he has withheld? Cherishing your portion or coveting the portion that God has not given? Are you cherishing your marriage and your marriage bed, seeing it as a way to worship God and glorify him? Or has it been defiled by you coveting by wanting someone or something that God has not given you. And the reason, the reason that sexual immorality and money are placed so closely together here is because if you have a coveting problem, it typically plays out in these two areas, in our sexuality and and with our money. So look back at Hebrews 13, verse 5, because this all fits in and goes together. Hebrews 13, verse 5. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, church, keep your life free from the love of money. Now, notice the problem here. Notice the problem here. Money is not actually the problem. Just like marriage and the marriage bed are not the actual problem. Let's be humble enough to say the problem is us. The problem is us. The problem is our hearts coveting what we don't have and developing this love for money where now our lives and our time and our energy are spent and poured out serving money instead of serving God. And Jesus is very clear that you can't serve both. And so church, whatever it is that you are craving that you don't have, Whatever your neighbor has that you don't have or you want, whether it's their salary or their car or their house or their lawnmower, their clothes, their shoes, their kitchens, their open floor plans, their donkey, if you do live out by the Canfields, their donkey, you know, that's applicable here. Whatever it is, whatever it is, listen, even if you got it, I'm telling you, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough. The wisdom of God's word says in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, it says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Right? He who loves money, you're just not going to be satisfied with it. People waste their whole lives and they don't figure out that truth. And so listen, here's, here's a really quick and easy way to self-diagnose if you are a lover of money, all right? Think through your life, think through your days, think through your weeks. Uh, do you ever feel like you have enough? Do you ever feel like you have enough? 
Or is what you have just never quite enough? It's never, if it's never quite enough, you probably are a lover of money. Or your, your income, think about your income, your, your, your wealth, your job, whatever it is where you're, you're earning an income. Um, if you are always looking forward to the next promotion, the next raise, the next bump up, if that's what consumes your thoughts and your time throughout your day, thinking about that next bump up, listen, if that's the case, you are probably a lover of money. Now, don't despair. I came to preach good news today. God's Word gives us a sweet and soothing remedy to heal our hearts of coveting. And it's here in Hebrews 13, verse 5. God's Word says, Be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. That is, that is a word from the Lord that no marketer or advertiser would ever want you to hear. Right? Uh, Siri, Alexa, whoever's listening is probably getting angry right now, okay? It's the exact, to be content with what you have is the exact opposite of what every commercial or ad is trying to tell you. Be content with what you have. Contentment, Christian contentment, is the medicine that heals hearts from the sin of coveting. All right? We've exposed the problem, but what's the remedy? Christian contentment is the medicine that heals our hearts from the sin of coveting. Listen, contentment will drown out the cry of our sinful flesh to be discontent with what God has given or not given us. And so let's, let's talk about this topic of contentment for a bit, and let's first clarify uh, the difference between contentment and complacency, because the two are not the same, all right? And sometimes when I think of someone who's content, I think of someone just sitting around that's just kind of complacent with life, and they call it contentment. And that's not true, all right? So the person who's sitting around, the person who's not working, not serving, not contributing to the church or civilization, and it's all done in the name of contentment, that's not really contentment. That is complacency. That is laziness. That is the sluggard. No, we are to be hardworking. We are to be ambitious in life. But our ambition should be for God's glory and not our own glory. I, I feel like ambitious people, people who are driven, they sometimes get a bad rap, all right? Because things can go off the rails quickly with them. But we are very much called to be ambitious. We are called to go cultivate and tend and keep culture and civilization and fill the earth and to be God's representative rulers here and to go disciple the nations and to, to bring them into submission to Christ through the proclamation of the gospel and calling them to repentance and faith. There are things that we need to be getting after in life. For six days, we are to be getting after it. For one day, we come and we rest. We are not called to be complacent Christians. But you see, you can tell, you can tell, if you, if you, if you are an ambitious person, I hope, I hope we have a lot of ambitious people here ready to get after it for the glory of God. But you can tell when someone was ambitious for their own glory instead of God's glory when this happens. Watch how they respond when their mission or their goal doesn't work out the way they planned then you're going to see whose glory they were going after. 
And, and this has happened to me multiple times in life where God has put something on my heart. He's put a, a passion, a vision, a, a pressing that I felt like I had to step out in faith and do. And I stepped out in faith and I tried to obey. And then God worked it all out. And typically when God works it out, it doesn't typically go the way I planned it would go. A lot of times it's way better than I could have envisioned, but sometimes it is disappointing. It just didn't quite turn out the way I thought it would go. And so here, here's what you do when that happens to yourself or when you see that happen to a brother or sister, when that person's mission or goal doesn't work out the way they envisioned, a person who was ambitious for self-glory will become very disappointed and discontent in life. On the other hand, a person who is ambitious for God's glory will, yes, work hard and get after it, but they will be able to be content with whatever outcome God and his providence brings to their faithful work. One of the Puritans, Jeremiah Burroughs, back in the 1600s, he wrote a book titled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. What a great title that is. So true, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And in that book, he gives a really helpful definition of what it means to be content. And so Harrison, you can leave this up on the screen for a little bit if people want to write it down. He writes, contentment is the inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I'll read it again. Contentment is the inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And church, that's what I want. That's what I want for myself. That's what I want for you. I want us to experience that healing remedy of being content in Christ. You see, we become discontent. Uh, typically, two things happen when we become discontent. Number one is we become discontent when we forget what we deserve. Hebrews 13, verse 4, which we just covered, I think very clearly tells us we deserve. We deserve God's judgment. I mean, all of us, right? We could, we could go through the list of sexual immorality if the kids weren't in here, right? We could talk about all the ways that we have committed adultery, in our, if, not, if not with our hands, with our hearts, right? I think we could all fall into this category of deserving God's judgment. It's judgment is what we deserve, and we become discontent when we forget what we deserve. But number two, and secondly, we also become discontent when we don't realize what we have. You see, Hebrews 13 does not just tell us to be content and then, you know, good, good luck with that. God's Word tells us to be content by realizing what we have. Look at what we have. Look back at Hebrews 13. He's going to tell us what we have. Hebrews 13, verse 5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. What do we have? For he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. A quote from Psalm 118. 
Church, how beautiful this is that we can be content with what we have because what we have is glorious. What we have is eternal. What we have will never leave us. What we have will never forsake us. What we have will be an ever-present helper to us. What we have, man cannot touch or threaten. And so, yes, a Christian can be content with what they have because they have Christ. They have Christ. And this is why the Apostle Paul can write to the Philippians explaining to them that he's learned the secret of facing both plenty and hunger. He's learned the secret of facing both abundance and need. The reason that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, which is more than just scoring touchdowns, right? The reason he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him is that he knows that God will supply every need of his according to the riches in Christ Jesus. And therefore, Philippians 4 verse 11, he can say stuff like this. He can say, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. May that be said of us, church, that we would learn. It is a learned, it is a learned thing. Right? It doesn't come naturally to us to be content in whatever situation the Lord would have us in. But by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can learn to say like Paul said, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And so, yes, we must be ambitious for the glory of God. We must get after it. We must, we must really press in and work hard to see the, the nations discipled, to see our neighbors reached, to practice Christian hospitality like we talked about last week. But we, but we must also be content in whatever situation or circumstance the Lord brings. So if we, could, if we could tie this into last week's message, right? We are to be practicing Christian hospitality, but you know what? Sometimes it's not going to go well. <laughs> Can we be content with that? Or are we going to throw a pity party when things didn't work out exactly like we wanted and we didn't get to baptize all of our neighbors this last week like I was hoping to be able to report to you uh, this morning? <laughs> be ambitious, for the glory of God, but be content in whatever outcome and whatever portion the Lord might bring to your work. May we have that inward, quiet, gracious spirit that freely submits and takes pleasure in God's wise and fatherly hand in every circumstance. Church, contentment in Christ is the medicine our heart desperately needs. We must remember what we deserve. We must realize what we have. And we can be content with what we have because we have Christ. We have Christ. Now this morning's, this morning's passage, it was, it's a passage I knew that was was, was coming up in Hebrews, and it weighed heavy on my heart for a few reasons. Number one is I fear that this could bring up some guilt and shame from our past. Because we all have 
fallen short in these areas at times, either with our hands or with our hearts. We have been prone to fall in love with money. We have been prone to defile the marriage bed. We've been prone to view our sexuality in a selfish manner. We have at times not found contentment in Christ and instead wanted more, more, more of other things, and it's never been enough. We all at times have forgotten what we deserve. We, don't, we, have, we have not realized what we have. And yet here, God gives us the same promise to us that he gave to Joshua. This is likely a quote from Joshua when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. When, God is, is, when Joshua is taking over uh, the leadership from Moses and he's getting ready to lead the people into the promised land, I'm sure Joshua had a lot of fears and anxieties about the enemies that faced him and all this was going to happen. And God said to him what he said, says to us, that in Christ, I will never leave you or forsake you. But, but the reason that this could have this weighed heavy on me is that I fear that some of us are starting to feel the regret and the guilt of our past. Some of us maybe are, are fearing the temptations that will, that will be in front of us as we leave from this place. And yet to both, both the person that's feeling regret and guilt over the past and the person that's fearful about the future and all the temptations that surround them, God gives us this promise that to those whose faith is in Christ, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Christ left the throne room of heaven to live, die, rise, and ascend for us so that we could be assured that God would never leave us. Christ was forsaken for you, church, in your place so that you would never be forsaken. Therefore, we can say, like the psalmist and like the writer of Hebrews, we do not fear because the Lord is our helper. What better helper could we ask for? And so what does this mean, though? What does this mean for the person who in their past has committed adultery, has committed sexual immorality, has been enslaved by pornography, What does this mean for the person who has had physical intimacy outside of the covenant of marriage? But what does it say for those people who, who, who they've already confessed these to God and to others? They've already repented and turned from them, and they've been walking with Christ. But now a message like this starts to bring up some really bad memories. And we start to feel the guilt and the shame start to creep back into our lives. And listen, church, if you have already dealt with these sins, if you have already turned them over to Christ and turned from them, and you've already received his grace and forgiveness, my intention this morning is not to heap more guilt upon you as to what you have done in your past. No, instead my prayer is that now on this side of the cross, that now those past memories will instead remind you of God's mercy and grace in your life. 
Church, Christ is powerful enough to not only rescue you from past enslavement to sin, but sin, but he can also redeem those memories so that even when the enemy throws those memories in your face or when those memories come up in your mind, you no longer have to feel guilt or shame, but instead you can glorify God because of his mercy and grace. Christ is powerful enough to do that. Listen, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And while that price was free to us, it was costly to Christ. And he paid for you with his precious blood. And when he bought you, he bought your past, present, and future. Your past is not about you anymore. It's not about you anymore. It's not about your sin and your shame and your screw-ups. No, the past of the redeemed is now a proclamation of God's glory and his grace. That's what your past is about now. There is a fountain filled with blood that was drawn from Emmanuel's veins that when sinners are plunged beneath that flood, they lose all their guilty stains, church. Your past no longer defines or directs you. Your sin has been paid for. Your guilt has been removed. You are now in Christ. And by the power of the Spirit, Christ is now in you. And it is now He who defines you and directs you. Your past, even memories. We store our memories in the brain in in visual things, all right? A lot of you have memories. You can envision things in the past. But even when those things come up, We can ask Christ to wash those memories with his blood. And listen, when he washes those memories with his blood, when those memories come up now in my mind, it's no longer a thought of how awful I am. When those memories are washed by the blood of Christ, now it's a how great God is. How gracious God is to us, church. The believer who has already confessed and repented of sin need not walk out of here thinking how awful I am, but instead how gracious God is. God has been gracious to us, church. He has been gracious to us. But what about this group of people? What, about, what does this mean for the person who was sexually sinned against in the past? who has been abused or mistreated or taken advantage of. Someone has taken from you sexually and used you as an object for their own pleasure. Some of you have experienced this sort of sexual sin. It was not a sin of your own, but it was sinned against you. And listen, I'm so sorry you've had to endure that. But praise be to God. God can redeem those memories as well. This passage in Hebrews can bring you encouragement and comfort you as well for a couple of different reasons. Number one, to remember that God will judge the sexually immoral. Meaning he will judge those who take things for themselves sexually and abuse and use others to serve themselves. Okay, So no one got away with anything against you. Every sin will be dealt with. It was either dealt with on the cross of Christ or it will be dealt with in coming judgment. But God has not swept anything under the rug. Even if no one else saw or no one else believes you, God saw, God knows, and he will judge that person who sinned against you. And so you can rest in the justice of God 
even if you never see his justice carried out on this earth, you know that he will carry out his justice. This passage then also affirms to you that the Lord will be your helper as you seek to move forward and recover and give him the glory and come to an acceptance that this did happen to you in the past, but it does not need to define and direct your present or your future. Christ now defines your future. You are in Christ. You are a Christian. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. The Lord will be your helper as you seek to move forward. So don't seek to move forward by yourself. Certainly keep open communication with the Lord, but get brothers and sisters around you as well and have them help you walk through this as you recover. But then there's another group of people that this passage addresses as well. What does this mean for the person who is recently or currently lusting after someone who's not their spouse? What does this say to the person that is currently committing adultery or, or letting the sin of covetousness just run wild in their life, whether it be financially or with other desires? This word from Hebrews 13 is telling us, listen, we cannot take these sins lightly. We cannot treat these like little pet sins or just little problems that can coexist in the life of a Christian and the church. I've told this story before, um, but for those of you that haven't heard it, when I worked in the ER, there was once a a young lady who checked into the ER and she said that her, her chief complaint was a bee sting. And that she was not allergic. And so if you check into an ER with a bee sting and you're not allergic, you get put at the bottom of the wait list, okay? Just to all, I should coach some of you on how to get to the top of the ER list, all right? But, but uh, yeah, that gets you at the bottom. She got put in the way farthest room away from all the providers, waited for over an hour with this complaint of a bee sting. And I, you know, casually just meander in asking what the problem is. She says, I was walking down the street and something stung me. I said, okay, let's have a look. Lifted the shirt up to show her abdomen and she had a gunshot wound to the abdomen through and through. Rushed her up to the shock rooms, right? Started getting her the treatment and everything that she would need. But listen, the only reason that she could get the treatment that she needed was that the wound was exposed. The problem was exposed so that it could be dealt with. Wounds never get dealt with unless they are exposed. Wisdom from God tells us this in Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The sin of coveting that leads to sexual immorality and that leads to the love of money, listen, it is not a little bee sting like you think it is. You cannot wait around on this one. The sin of coveting is like a gunshot wound to the abdomen that will absolutely kill you if you don't expose it and deal with it. 
sexual immorality, and the love of money. I mean, that's the stuff that destroys lives. It breaks apart families, and it it causes local churches just to crumble overnight. We have to see these for what they are. This is not a beast thing. This is a gunshot wound to the abdomen. And your life and our church depend upon how you deal with it today. Whether or not you expose it. Whether or not you confess it. Whether or not you turn from it. And you get your brothers and sisters around you to help you. And and so as the Lord leads you, that you might pursue Christ more and more without having this little thing that you're just trying to conceal and hide from everyone else. Even that little nagging, that desire you have for more, 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 it is serious stuff. And it needs to be dealt with when it's small so it doesn't get out of control and burn this whole place down. And so if the Spirit has brought you under conviction this morning. Praise be to God. Do not ignore that. Grab a brother. Grab a sister. Grab your city group leader. Grab one of the pastors. And listen, we need to deal with it today. We need to expose it today. We, we preach verse by verse to the Bible, meaning, hey, God in his providence, he's allowed this word to be preached to you today, meaning it needs to be dealt with today. We cannot afford to let this go on any longer. We need to expose this today. James 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is God's word, God's promise to us. These areas, love of money, sexual immorality, coveting. Yes, we need to deal, we need to confess them to God, but we need to confess them to one another. We need to pray for one another. We need to be humble enough to realize we cannot do this on our own. And you know you've got to do this today. And so a few of us, we're planning, we're going we're to stick around today, however long we need to stick around. And we can pray, we can talk. Don't let this go on. Church, I realize there's some anxiety there to want to expose the wound and confess it. But, but look at God's word here in Hebrews 13, right? Do not fear. The Lord is our helper. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will help you. He will give you the courage. Therefore, let us confess to him and to one another how we have coveted. And let us learn together how to be content in Christ. Let us not forget what we deserve and let us realize what we have. Because in Christ we have everything our soul has ever longed for. And therefore we can be content with what we have. Because we have Christ. Let's pray.